and welcome back to another Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. So today we're going to look at everyone's favourite yeast, Candida. Firstly, remember the distinction made between yeasts and moles. Yeasts, like Candida species, are single-celled organisms, whereas moles, like Aspergillus, are multicellular. So candidiasis is common in ICU patients. It grows commonly in our bronchioalveolar device samples. It grows in our urine samples. It's often the only positive micro we manage to turn up because the patients are mostly pickled in meropenem and linezolid and the candida is all that is left or it becomes selected out. And it's important to note that all these bile and urine samples of candida are common and generally reflect colonisation rather than infection. And in general, they shouldn't be treated. That being said, knowing what's there in the event of a patient getting super sick might be somewhat helpful in guiding therapy. So the Life in the Fasting Post describes candida as invasive if it's grown in blood cultures, fair enough, it's found in a sterile cavity, cultured from two non-contiguous sites. So here, for example, you could argue that candida in sputum and urine fulfills this criteria for invasive, though in reality I find we rarely treat this, we rarely treat this type of growth unless they're um, super sick. Um, it could be invasive candidiasis if the species is a non-commensal form of candida and it's invasive if the culture is from a wound or a burn biopsy. So risk factors for invasive candidiasis can be summed up um, as inverted commas being proper sick, but they can be somewhat more nuanced to include things like invasive lines, some kind of intra-abdominal perforation or major burns or some kind of horrible uh, immunosuppression. We make the diagnosis here using a variety of tools. I suppose the easiest is being when candida pops up in a blood culture on a sick patient, um, or commonly it can grow from a drain fluid in some abdominal disaster, um, particularly the higher up the GI tract the disaster occurs, the more likely you are to find candida involved. So once you have a tissue diagnosis with a named species um, with sensitivities, then treatment becomes relatively straightforward. Um, there are actually a variety of named scoring systems that can help you estimate the risk of an invasive candidal infection and these things rejoice in names like the Nebraska criteria or the Candida score and the PAFI2 score. However, I don't see anyone using these in clinical practice. More commonly, we're likely to be faced with a deteriorating septic patient with risk factors for candidiasis and we empirically start an antifungal. So the issue now comes with stopping or supporting the ongoing use of this antifungal. And here tests like the beta-D-glucan probably have a role. So BDG is a cell wall component of all fungi, so it's certainly not specific for candida, but if it's through the roof in a sick patient, then coverage with an antifungal is probably reasonable. On the other hand, if it's undetectable and the indication for the antifungal was a bit soft in the first place, then maybe it's time to stop. The sensitivity is somewhere in the 75 to 85% range, so I would not use it to rule out on the super sick, super high risk patient. When it comes to treatment, we have to consider source control. If it's going from a belly full of collections, then you need to drain the collections. Once source control is out of the way, we now face a variety of choices. Ultimately, if we've grown a candida, then we'll eventually get sensitivities and we can tailor therapy appropriately. But all of this takes time and we need to start something before then. So in general, we turn to the echinocandins, drugs like anagelifungin and caspafungin. And these are workhorses in the ICU with a fairly low side effect profile and importantly cover the vast majority of candida likely to grow. They also have a nice action against biofilm embedded bugs, which is very handy given the number of line-related candida infections we might see. Fluconazole is of course an obvious option, but it struggles when it's um, something other than candida albicans. Uh, hence I see it more often used as a de-escalation agent once you've got the bug identified and the sensitivities back. The other agents like amphotericin and varconazole will work of course um, but uh, for candida, but they're generally not needed. 
In terms of the guidelines we have available, um, the 2012 European Microbiology Guidelines have Caspo or Anagilla as first-line treatment for documented invasive candidiasis. And the IDSA in 2016 suggests fluconazole in stable patients and then Caspo or Anagilla fungal if unstable. That dreaded term, stable and unstable. Finally, there's often great anxiety and hand-wringing regarding the eyeballs when someone grows a candida in the blood. So every time we grow candida in the blood, we need to twist the arm of some poor eye doctor to come and do an examination for us. Indeed, candida end ophthalmitis is a well-described and fairly devastating metastatic complication of candida, but the eyeballs have the useful characteristic of being fairly easily accessible to clinical examination. So if the eyes are red and nasty, then I'd probably be worried. And if not, then maybe you're okay. Uh, And this kind of knee-jerk reaction is probably mildly supported by a 2019 JAMA Ophthalmology Systematic Review meta-analysis that suggested that a routine examination by an ophthalmologist was useful in 3 out of 7,000 patients and they made the gentle suggestion that maybe the IDSA should rethink their guidance, please and thank you. If you do happen to find candida in the eyeball, then you will need to rethink your antifungal strategy, as our beloved echinocandins just don't penetrate that well. And you should be reaching for fluconazole or flucytosine or indeed some kind of needle injection of the stuff into the eyeball itself. Um, in terms of some reading for this, this comes mainly from O's Manual, Chapter 73, The Life in the Fastly and Post. The JAMA Ophthalmology article is Brizano et al. Um, and it's linked to in the show notes. And don't forget the IDSA and European... Um, Microbiology guidelines. And uh, unfortunately, I missed it in the preparation for this post, but of course, since then, um, the Internet Book of Critical Care, Josh and Adam Thomas, produced an ed- excellent post and podcast that covers a lot more detail than I've squeezed in here and is honestly compulsory reading. <laughs>